Tim Goldstein, autistic adult and your host for Life in a Neurotypical Universe, where we take a look at life from the perspective of an autistic adult. I would like to introduce Carol Feldman Bass, who works quite a bit with a variety of different people doing what is called social dynamics. And she will explain a lot more about that. And Carol has an amazing, interesting journey, as I've learned from looking over some of her materials, of going from an attorney to uh, going to helping us autistic people and other kinds of people. Mm Mm-hmm. So, Carol, tell us a little bit about yourself. Okay. Nice open-ended question. (laughs) Always so easy. Um, So, yes, my journey has been varied, to say the least. I started off as an attorney, um, but always simultaneously I did um, theater. And I was a professional comic, an improvisational comic in Boston for years. And so I was attorney by day, comic by night, and thought, I really don't like what I do during the day as much as what I like doing at night. Um, so I said, so then I went on the journey to sort of say, okay, what am I going to do? And I tried lots of different things. I became a divorce mediator, which was also not for me. I became a coach, a life and executive coach, which I liked. But then I didn't sort of like the process of the way they, they did the sort of um, I, through, through the organization that I studied with, it was very much a buy into our thing, keep taking our courses, keep taking our courses, and then you'll be an even better course. And I was like, no, I'm sort of done with that. And then I went, to, I was like, ah, this, is, this is too much of sort of a scene that I don't want to get into. <laughs> that you probably will edit out. <laughs> no, actually, I, I don't think I will, because you, you bring up, I think, a, a very good point with that. I mean, while you're talking about a, a particular, you know, arena, I think that is an issue, though, that comes up with people on the spectrum in some of the different ways that people like to try to approach doing something about it. And right. the something varies from the people that think they can cure it uh, right. to the people that think uh, it, it's merely just this is how we are and we just need to learn some additional skills to interact better. I'm going to tell you what to do. It's like, and I don't believe in any of that. So, so what happened after I became a coach, and I did like doing the coaching, and I liked doing um, executive coaching because I had come out of the corporate world and I understood it. Um, but then I went to... Leslie University and started doing some work in expressive therapies and I found psychodrama and psychodrama is its own particular modality it's not drama therapy it's not just a general expressive therapy though it comes under that umbrella psychodrama is the process is the actual method of doing the work but the things about psychodrama that are so interesting or were interesting to me is that it's all about understanding the perspective of the other really understanding by not only just thinking about it, but by being in the role of the other. So you are now, so if you and I, if I was doing a psychodrama about you and you were not in the room, I would reverse roles with someone who was playing you and I would be in you. And I would start thinking, hmm, what would Tim say about this? What would he think about this from his perspective? What I understand about So the way this all came into my work now with people on the spectrum 
is that I started training and it's an institute. And so I would go every month for, gosh, I think almost 11 years I went to this institute. And as I was training, I was like, okay, so what am I going to do during the times that I'm going to my institute to train to become a psychodramatist? And so in New England, there's an organization called the um, AANE, which is the Asperger's Network of New England. And I went there, and this was back in 2005 or between 2005, 2007. Can't quite remember. And I said, I wanted to do an improv group for young adults. And the director said, no, we don't need that. We need a dating group for young. Yes, we need a dating group for young adults on the spectrum. I said, well, what age is young? She said, oh, between the mid-20s and 30s. And I said, okay, <laughs> having no idea. I was like, sure, why not? And I had no idea. Really, I didn't know what the DSM said. I had never read a book about it. I had never, I mean, I'm sure I knew people. I mean, I never thought about it in any other terms. except, oh, that's Tim, that's Bob. That's... And so I went and I ran this group. And my only condition was, can I run it the way I want to run it? Do I have to run it the way you think, like the talking heads, that everyone's just going to sit there and listen to me? And the director said, no, you can do it any way you want. So I ran it. I would learn something in psychodrama and I would come back and apply it to the group. But the thing about the group was they were not a group of people on, they were not a group of Aspies. They were Sam, Dan, Sarah, Bill, Tony. I mean, they were just people to me. They were not any diagnosis. They were no number. They were no label. And that's exactly how I learned about people on the spectrum because I learned it from them. I learned because what I do is I use real life experiences. Like show me what really happens when you want to approach somebody to ask for a date. Show me what that looks like. Somebody come up here and be the woman. So we'll do that. And then the question would be to the group, would that work? And the group always goes, well, no, they're this, they're that. Come up and show me again. Okay. Well, then now reverse roles. Be the woman or be the, the other. Now try what you're doing. Now from that perspective of the other, would it work? Interesting. Yes. You know, you, I saw on one of your videos something about uh, you had mentioned that you want people to, and you referenced it right here, that you want people to show their story, not tell their story. Yes. And what that brought to, you know, my Asperger mind is, uh, you know, if I want to tell the story of my life, how do I show 59 years worth of craziness? <laughs> now, well, certainly the, the way you just explained it makes perfect sense when you're explaining it in the context of show me this one, show me how you would handle this one single situation. Right. But I think you are definitely onto something that showing people something is much more meaningful and conveys a lot more than just talking at them. Yes, absolutely. So how do you bridge from the small kind of, you know, scenario to the, okay, now you're dating this person and mm -hmm. now the complexity increases, you know, <laughs> exponentially because gosh knows what can happen. So how do right. you relate? You know, you've been dating this person four or five months. How do you come back and show you what went on over four or five months? That's exactly what happened. So, so if I'm working with a group, um, I, 
so I'm definitely not a believer in scripts, in rules, in do this, do that. Um, this is what you should do. This is what women want. This is what men want. It's like, you don't know. How can I tell you? Because I don't know. So you've got to learn in the moment. you got to be, the key is to be spontaneous. And when I say spontaneous, I'm not talking about improv comedy spontaneity. That's a specific type of entertainment. I'm talking about just being adequate, being in the moment and being able to respond. That's spontaneous. So you mean basically a, a, a two, being able to handle a real-time two-way conversation? Absolutely. That's all it, that's spontaneous. And if you look at it, it, it is an improv. It's a yes and. That's the basic form of improvisation is yes and, which is what we're doing. We're Correct. Just offer, acceptance, offer acceptance. But what you do with, what I would do, so just as a, as a note, that group I ran, ran for three years. And it ended up with two people being married, not within the group. It was not a social group. Um, two people were married and two people ended up being in long-term partnerships for people who had never been in relationships before. Well, I have to ask you now, from, from that experience, and obviously your experience prior was dealing with relationships that were probably mostly not involving people on the spectrum. I mean, you did some marriage relationship. No, but now I'm like looking back going, yeah, they probably were. Right. I mean, there could have been some mixed in there, but I'm guessing, you know, overall it was more, you know, neurotypical people for the majority. I mean, certainly we do know that when you have a spectrum person involved in a relationship with a non-spectrum or even two spectrum with each other, it tends to be a much more volatile and, uh, uh, we'll say, a precarious type uh, situation than a, a normal, already difficult human, you know, Absolutely. close relationship. But what would you say, did you notice between the two different groups of saying, you know, your neurotypicals when you were doing marriage science stuff, and mm -hmm. here working with a group of people with autism, Asperger's particularly, and how they saw and interacted with each other on that intimate relation level versus neurotypicals. So how they interacted if it was a, if it was a, um, an Aspie Aspie relationship or with the neurotypical? Because I, I, I would say both because, uh, you know, there, yeah. there's a, a big, to me, a big lack of information out there. Well, first off, there's a lack of information about adults having autism. Absolutely. You're absolutely right. And this is a big, I, I can't tell you how many times I have to explain that to people. Right. I when when you ask somebody, yeah. you know, tell, tell me what you think of autism. Just give me a picture. It's going to be a child they're going to describe. That's what's going to come to mind. And they have no, cl they have no clue that Joe or Sally or Fred that works right next to them is right. on the spectrum. <laughs> no, they're just difficult. Is what they are. Exactly. Uh, I, I like to use the term, uh, they're often referred to as the brilliant jerks. Exactly. Because they're sharp, but they don't particularly care about the social etiquette. Right. And, and see, the thing is, is that they don't care, but they do care, is what I found. What, the, what happens is, it's like, don't you understand me? Please understand me. Try to see it through my eyes. Try to see it through my, hear it through my ears. I mean, I read one of your articles and you were talking about the language. You know, that is the key. It is, I am speaking, I, I, there's a book, I think it's called um, Twirling in the Streets, um, written by a young, um, I think it's a young man on the spectrum, but what he what he taught, and he has no language, so he's, he's truly towards the autistic as what I think of 
You know, when, when people think of autism, when they describe it to me, oh, you work with autistic people. Don't they tantrum? Don't they? I'm like, no, they don't. They, they don't. You, you have this very, very, very narrow perception of what a person on the spectrum is like. And, and you need, I can't say you need to change that, but they do because they're, it's a language. It's, so, so in psychodrama, it's all about reversing roles. It's all about being in the role of the other. And it's not acting. You're not acting as a person on the spectrum. You are the person on the spectrum. You are. So when I work with couples, you know, and somebody's neurotypical and somebody is not, it's always the, she doesn't listen to me. She only wants to do it her way. Or he's only this way. He only has his agenda. He only has this. And it's like, no. Can, can we go deeper as to why they have that agenda or why they want to do it that way? They want to do it that way because that's the logical way, but the logical way is going to get you the right answer, which is going to make you feel good, which is going to make you happy. So it really is that they're doing it because they love you, but it's breaking that down so that people can see it and understand it, but they can't until they're in that role and going, oh, really? You really do love me? That's why you're fixing the ceiling lamp? It's like, of course, I didn't have to say I loved you. You said the ceiling lamp was out. I'm going to go fix it, which means I love you. You know, that, that is, I, I'm, so, I'm so glad you mentioned that, uh, <laughs> as a matter of fact. You know, I, I wasn't diagnosed until about five years ago. And, you know, for, for the audience that's listening, I, I'm 59 years old now, mm-hmm. which means I went through the majority of my life uh, not knowing why I was different. I certainly knew I was different, but mm-hmm. other than just being different, who knew? And I've been married now, uh, it's coming up 35 years. And I have a wife who uh, is absolutely amazing that she's stuck with me through all of this craziness. But what has happened now is since I've been diagnosed and that she is starting to understand more and more of the autistic way, the autistic mind, Mm -hmm. she did not understand that all these things I used to do, not used to, I still do them, such as fixing the light bulb or, you know, uh, it's, it's 10 o'clock at night. And she says, geez, it'd be nice to have some ice cream. And I go, you know, yeah, what do you want? I'm going to go. And she says, no, it's, it's, it's late. You don't need to go. No, you don't understand. That's my expression of love because it it doesn't come out as squishy feely. That's just not how it comes out for me, but it comes out that the climb up the ladder and I'll, I'll fix the darn bulb because I love you. I'm going to take care of it. Or I'm going to go to the store, even though it's inconvenient today, tonight, because I want to do that as something for you. So, and, and the shock that people have when that is, I mean, I can't, so many times I sit there with, with couples or with people who have been diagnosed later in life. And that's, uh, that is so difficult for so many. And as you know, it can be very helpful and it can be very hurtful simultaneously for everybody. But for me, it was, it was very, very helpful, but I've certainly mm-hmm. seen plenty of scenarios where, you're right. Uh, it can be very hurtful to some people also. Uh, you right. know, for me, I knew I was outside the norm enough that having a, uh, an understanding of why was very, very helpful. But right. I, I certainly know lots of people that when they got the diagnosis, it almost felt like a death sentence to them. Absolutely. And, and, and that is, it should not feel that way. You know, when people get a diagnosis of anxiety, it's not a death sentence. But when they get this diagnosis, it's like you just have to be able to understand what a person is 
trying to communicate. Not expect them to communicate the same way you are because they're not going to. That's not the way they're wired. Just accept it. It's it's there. You can't change it. So understand it. And and the lack of willingness sometimes for me as the person who who tries to make these connections becomes so frustrating. It, it's like this is not a hard thing. This this person sitting next to you loves you, cares about you. But all you want is you want it to be in your way of expression, but you're not letting them express it in their way of expression, which is going to make it better for both of you. And there's just this, no, it has to be this way. Well, why? It doesn't have to be that way. And so there's always that, you know, I'll get the, the person who's on the spectrum is like, yeah, you get it. You're right. Yeah. Listen to her. Person who's not on the spectrum is like, no, that's not right. They have to be able to hug me when I need hugging. And I'm like, no, they don't. They can't in that moment. Give them time. Maybe later. Let them know. Give them space. I mean, so, so I'm often the champion of, so when it, I mean, this is just funny in a, in a way is that a couple will come to me because the spouse who has now found out the diagnosis of the other spouse who is the spectrum spouse comes to me because they're like see i found it this is the problem they're the problem fix it i'm like I, no i can't fix them nor anything let's find out what's going on so usually it's the neurotypical who comes but it's the person on the spectrum who goes, you really get me. <laughs> <laughs> I think you, you hit on a, a real key piece there, which is this idea, we'll say, for lack of a better term. You hit on a really interesting idea, which is that people don't seem to have, and when I say people, I'm referring to the majority, which means neurotypicals, don't have a good concept or, or, you know, a good mental construct of what is somebody that is on the spectrum. I mean, right. if we talk about disabled, of course, what do people think of? Wheelchairs. I mean, that's the sign everywhere. Of course, right. how many people are disabled that don't have wheelchairs? Right. But right. if you don't have a mental construct, it's hard to understand the differences. And I think that's one of the big breakdowns to me is there's been a lack of people who are on the spectrum that can communicate well enough to neurotypicals to give them a model that they can then go forward with saying, ah, it's not the way I work, but now I understand the model. Right, right. And, and that, that's what I try to do, is I try to say, okay, what is your model for this neurotypical person that you're either living with, working with, trying to be friends with what what do you need to let them know about you you know i mean i'm not big on eye contact i don't care if people make eye contact i think it makes people nervous when they have to make eye contact if it, it i'm like if it's going to make you nervous don't do it just explain it just say i'm not doing this because i hear everything you're saying and people go oh, i can't do that i can't do that because then people will think badly of me people are going to have this impression of me i'm like just try it do, do you know that you can take and, and very easily make a, a good majority of neurotypicals look away from you in a conversation if you know how to do it? <laughs> and it, it comes down to, I had read a, an article that, uh, and obviously that's, when you're an Aspie and you get into something, obviously you, you read whatever you can and you research it a lot. <laughs> and, uh, you know, this is my special interest now, so I spend a lot of time on this. Read this article 
And what this article was talking about was they had done a bunch of, you know, the advanced imaging they have now. And what they came to a conclusion was that the part of your brain that interprets faces and visual cues, so in other words, what you get from eye contact, is the same area of the brain that you use to string together concepts and words and sentences. And that's how you can get a neurotypical to very easily look away. If I were just to ask you a, a, a series of nouns and you give me a verb that goes with it. So we say like cup mm-hmm. and, you know, some verb that goes with it. And if I asked you just, you know, three or four in a row that are very common things, a cup, drive, a stove. I mean, those are, we all know things you do with it. And then I ask you about something that's just a crazy thing you've never heard of in your life majority of people will look up in the sky or down at the floor or look somewhere to try and find the answer. And they're doing exactly what an autistic person is doing. They're looking for the answer in their head and I don't need the distraction of your face to get the answer out of my head. (laughs) Right, because that's just going to make me not be able to do it. Correct. Uh, Yeah, I mean, I need that brain area and it's possibly, I mean, we obviously don't know a huge amount about autism. The amount we know is probably less than the amount we don't know. But, you know, we certainly do know that in the autistic individuals, that tends to be a challenge of the real-time conversation and the real-time inputs all at the same time. Right. And, and the thing is, is that what, what I find is when I'm working with, especially a young adult, and, and they've been told over and over again, eye contact's important, got to make eye contact, got to make eye contact. That once you sort of have that thing of like, I don't care about eye contact. I want, I want you just to be you and do what you need to do so we can get you. I mean, my first question to everybody is, what do you want? What do you want? I don't care what your parents want. I don't care what your partner wants. I want to know what you want because that's the goal. And so if what you want is not to have to struggle to make eye contact, figure out a way that you don't have to do it because then what happens is once there's the relaxation, once there's the true spontaneity, which again is just being good enough, adequate, eye contact no longer becomes a problem. But what about the situation? And again, you know, another area that I'm very, very involved with is the autism at work efforts and yeah. movements that, you know, there's a lot of obviously big, both U.S. and international corporations that are yeah. very much promoting it. Uh, and it's also funny how many big corporations have no clue that some of the no biggest clue. corporations in the world are doing all this. Right. Um, but, but how do you handle, you know, you take the interview situation and obviously the autism at work companies have developed a, you know, parallel kind of processes to be more autism friendly in the interview. Right. But let's say you're going to, you know, the vast majority of employers, which means that a, they probably don't even know what autism is. They definitely don't think that that preconceived notion of what it is. Right. They don't think that they employ anybody that's autistic, even though you can walk through most of their departments. And, uh, you know, uh, Hans Asperger said, uh, you know, once you know the uh, what uh, what the symptoms of autism, you see it everywhere. And the answer is we can walk through and just, you know, pick them right out. And they may not be diagnosed statistically by the DSM. They may not fit the criteria. But I use the the term uh, of uh, autistic leaning. Mm-hmm. Meaning they think and process like somebody on autism. I don't care if they, you know, happen to have, you know, not looking in your eyes or whatever. Right. Uh, to me, it's about the thinking. The traits were all built around children. So again, we have a diagnostic technique that's accepted that was based on nonverbal children, not based right. on adults. <laughs> right, right. Or adults who have gotten, who, who succeeded. 
Yeah. It's not based upon adults who've become successes either. Right. I mean, we hear the statistic that says, uh, I, you know, the last version I heard was 85% of uh, autistic people in the working age range are, are under or unemployed. And I say that's absolute BS because yeah. I've worked in the tech industry for, well, I hate to say how many years, but, you know, going on two decades plus. <laughs> and uh, now knowing, you know, that with what I know about autism and that I have it and just looking back over all the companies I've worked with, I worked as an independent consultant, they're everywhere. You, you go into an IT department and uh, basically about half of them are autistic, autistic leaning. And if it's a real top end high IT department, move that number up. <laughs> yeah. And, and when I worked in the, because I worked in the corporate environment, I mean, I was in-house counsel for a major utility in New England for years. And when I think back, I'm like, oh yeah, they were. They were, they were. Right. And I realized, and, and I think about it because I think about their management styles. Yep. I think yep. about, they were terrible managers. Why were they such terrible? They had no idea. They had no idea how to manage, how, they didn't have any idea how to communicate. Even cared. They, they know how to manage things that are logical things. So if you'd ask yep. them to manage a project that didn't involve people, it involved systems, right. computers, it involved process. That they can manage, but you're right. It's that people interaction people. of not, you know, we're, we're I, I'll be honest with you. I, I uh, you know, have been a manager many times. I owned my own business and the reality was mm -hmm. I really stunk as a manager when I look back at it. And <laughs> the reason was my management style was 100% based on logic. If X is going on, then, you know, Y would be a good solution. So let's just right. go do Y with no consideration of the human factors that maybe why is going to cause some problems because people are going to feel, you know, singled out or people are going to feel, you know, called out or called, you know, <laughs> whatever. So I'll say I, I was a, I was a very poor manager and you're right. That is a very common thing that we're seeing and you can right. generally pick it up by just their management style. Cause that dictates how they're thinking about it. Right. And even though, you know, even if you take that in, in, a, in a corporate environment, I was working with this one gentleman who was, um, uh, what is, he was a major partner at a major law firm and we were sort of doing some coaching and he was talking about this same thing and he manages from logic. I said, okay, now you're managing from logic, but everyone who you're managing is not going to be as logical as you. So we need to map out just so you understand, not that you have to start being more you know, I'm touchy-feely, or you have to start having like a 45-minute check-in, emotional check-in. I'm not talking about that. Let's just map out and see, here's the logic. Let's progress it. Let's see what's the outcome. And go from every person that you're managing. This is the decision. What is this person? So again, it's, it's that putting yourself in the other's perspective, but from your decision. So it's like, how does, you know, Sally who's going to be the secretary who's going to be handling this tremendous amount of work product you're going to be putting out there, how is she going to feel with no help? Okay, now be Sally. Here's all the work product. Oh, she's going to feel overwhelmed? What are you going to do about it? So now you can come up with a lot. So that's how I manage that in, in a work environment. Like, I'm not going to change the way you want to manage, but let's figure out how to manage better by taking it to understanding, but that's all. Not that, again, you have to start the, the touchy-feely, let's, you know, hold hands and be positive about the project. And No, 
we can be logical, but we can also understand how it's going to affect. And so with interviewing, which was your original question, it's the same thing. And I've done a lot of interviewing workshops where um, it's about, let's see it. Now, again, because there's, I mean, some people do have experiences that they bring and they say, you know, well, this interview didn't go well. Well, show me what happened. So they show the interview and you're looking at the interview and you're like, okay. And then I usually, I ask, I always ask my group because my group is made up of people on the spectrum and they know more than I know. I don't know. So I'll ask them and I'll say, what are you seeing? And they'll, they'll say, well, they didn't get up when the person walked in the room. They didn't do this. They didn't. Okay. So those are physical things. Those can be changed. So now let's get to what the interview sounded like. So they'll do the interview. So somebody is up there playing the person who is the interviewer. So every time a question is asked and an answer is given, reverse roles. So now the interviewer, who's you, the person who's being interviewed for the job, is saying back to you the same words. So then you ask them, okay, Mr. Interviewer, would you hire this person? Absolutely not. Why? What did they leave out of their answer? They left out this. Reverse roles. Try it again. So it's constant practice practice but practicing in real time with real answers not here's your script of go ahead to interview because just like you said with a script i mean i was in plays my entire life theater my entire life they run out they're other people's words after a while you have no script what do you do when you have no script yeah that's it yes you, you, you sink and burn so people can't rely on script at least from my perspective that that keyword you hit on so many great things here that i just want to dig deeper into boy we, we could go for hours uh you know, know and unfortunately we all have time you know time limits uh, but some of the things you hit that i'd like to just kind of ask you a little bit more about or just discuss a little more one it sounds very much like the technique you use is very similar to what i use when you're dealing with somebody that's autistic and having a challenge interacting and it's that you're not telling them they have to change who they are, which is no. what the general everybody tells you. And what I always tell people is, you're perfect who you are. You're a perfect person. Now, you may need a few tools and skills added to that. Yep. You know, just like if I wanted to go talk and, uh, you know, be, uh, uh, you know, successful in France, I better learn some French. Right. You know, that's a tool. It doesn't change who I am. I'm still the same person, but I learned a new tool, a new language, a new communication method. Mm -hmm. And I think that, to me, has helped a lot of people in Asperger by framing it that way because they don't want to lose their identity, who they are. They like who they are. They, they yeah. tend to be very good at some things, just not good at social things. Right. But that doesn't mean I don't like me. I like me. <laughs> right. Absolutely. And, and that's exactly... The way I always sort of frame it is, okay, you want X. Something's in your way. So let's get whatever that is in your way, out of your way. That might need, we, we might need to smooth some edges on. We might need to just, you know, figure out, maybe don't be so blunt all the time. Little things, but you yourself, you don't have to change. And, and that is. It's liberating. I mean, that's what it really is. It's. It's, you know, the first time most people have been told that are on the spectrum. Yep. Not, they, they, you know, normally what we're told is, why can't you be like everybody else? Why can't you be normal? Right. Oh, and, yes. <laughs> why can't you? Right. And, and so when one of the things about psychodrama, using these sites, so I'm the only psychodramatist who does this. I'm the only person, I think, who does this particular technique. 
this action-based technique. I mean, people work with people with disabilities with psychodrama, but again, it's disability. And I don't think of being on the spectrum as a disability. I, I personally think it's a huge advantage. I mean, I couldn't yeah. have accomplished what I have in life if I had been a neurotypical, to be honest with you. I, I, it's, you know, again, I don't think of it as a disability. It doesn't stop you unless that's what you, unless that's what happens. And it doesn't have to happen if you don't want it to happen is really how I look at it. It's like, if you want it, you can get it. But you might have to work on stuff, but that's everybody. That's neurotypical, typical, doesn't matter. But with psychodrama, there's all sorts of things that I can uncover by going underneath words. There's techniques called doubling. So let's say a person on the, on the spectrum is saying, you know, well, I didn't want to um, make that person feel uncomfortable because I wanted them to like me. Well, what's the double of that? What's really underneath those words? So the double, from my perspective, would be I want people to think I'm normal. I want people to think I'm just like them, so they will like me. If I'm normal, they'll like me. So then when I check it out, it's like, how did you know that's what I was thinking? I'm like, I don't know. Maybe it's because I get it, because I really get it. I say one of the problems with that is, and not that they, the technique is right, I'm, I'm agreeing with you there, but uh, mm -hmm. one of the problems of, uh, the, you know, for the neurodiverse person is again, that concept of what does a neurotypical look like? So they have a mental construct that they can work against. Yep. And I, you know, I actually went and wrote up uh, my, my tip sheets. It's 10 tips for understanding uh, how to be neurotypical. Because <laughs> what have I heard you know, most of my life? And this was before I even knew I had any, you know, any kind of conditions. I always heard, why can't you just be like everybody else? Why can't you be right. normal? Because you know, I was on the extreme. Who knows what, why? I just was. And... You know, what I like to say is, that's wonderful to tell somebody. Unfortunately, we have no clue what normal looks like. We are being right. normal for who we are. Right. So, so what I came up with was these tips was very simple. How does somebody like myself, who is neurodiverse, has autism, how do I see neurotypicals acting as a conceptual model? And the conceptual mm -hmm. model is actually really simple, and uh, you'll probably get a kick out of it, is essentially uh, looking at uh, tribes, L look at, you know, indigenous type tribes and mm -hmm. think of neurotypicals as being the tribe. And when you think about it, if, if you're in a tribe situation, what's the number one rule in a tribe situation? Don't get kicked out of the tribe because you're going to die. Right. You need the tribe right. to live. <laughs> you gotta, that's what I was thinking. You can't let go. You can't stay behind. <laughs> right. And, and that is the number one rule. And when you take that as the number one rule and then just take everything else of the way neurotypicals work and go back to rule number one, you now understand suddenly why they do things that logically make no sense because they're looking uh -huh. at a different vein of logic. They're looking at the tribe and how do I stay part of the tribe? We're looking right. at the logic of step A, step B, step C. What's that got to do with anything? Right, right. Step A, step, right. How does that get anything? I mean, one of the things I do when I'm working with someone and they're like, I don't get it. Like I can't see from here to there is I do it. I take, you know, place markers and we go step by step by step by step. And they're like, Oh, now I see it. Cause I've mapped it out visually mapped it out. And it's like, Oh, okay. That makes sense now. Yep. You know, and I think that's the same idea you, you've got to get that yeah. so that they have a conceptual model that they can work yeah. from mm -hmm. because without the conceptual model, what's the assumption we all make? Oh, this person's right. like me, except, and when you're dealing with somebody neurodiverse, we're talking about a person who 
perceives and processes the world differently than most other people do. Right. So it, you can't, <laughs> you, you got to have some kind of model to work with because you can't just say, oh, they're like me because they're not like you. Not like you, right. And it, But that's the thing that it's like, and you can't make them like you. That's the thing. It's like nobody, you can't make a person change. You can't fix a person. It's like, I can't, when parents bring me a kid, so-and-so, he needs this fix. He needs this, you know, his social life needs to be fixed. I'm like, fix what? His social life is his social life. What does he want? What does she want? They don't want to be fixed. I mean, that has very, very specific, it means they're broken. They're not broken. They're them. They're just different. I, I like that, uh, you know, the, the way you put that uh, about, you know, them not needing to be fixed because, you know, most of us adults that are on the spectrum don't feel like we need to be fixed. We, no. we feel like we're perfectly fine, but what we feel is we need to be recognized as who we are. Absolutely. I, I think there's personally a lot of parallel between the LBGT plus community and mm -hmm. the autism community. And from the standpoint that both of them cut across every type of barrier you care about. It doesn't care about gender. It doesn't care about race. Right. It doesn't care about socioeconomic status. Uh, you can be right. in either one of those groups in any other combination of groups. The only difference that I've really seen is the LBGT groups have been very, very good at cooperating and organizing to make it well known of who they are and what they're about, that they're just regular old people that have a different preference in one area. That's all. Right. And what I've seen, though, is as autistic people, we essentially, uh, you know, one of the problems we have is obviously social interaction. And I like right. to say we, we lack so much social glue, we don't know how to create our own culture like the LBGT plus culture has. So we're never able to get visible because because we never, you know, we never come together as a community. <laughs> right. But Again, I think if we wanted to, we could. I mean, like I'm saying we, but it's like, you know, once you get, once I've gotten to know people, I get to know people. I'm not knowing, I don't get to know their diagnosis. I don't care. I don't, I, it's, I don't even know what number it is anymore. Like, and I don't even, you know. I think actually the diagnosis is are so, uh, how would we say, disjointed from real life. Yes. You know, we all know that if you miss one criteria out of the DSM, which for those people not familiar with it, it's kind of like a Chinese menu of something out of this category and two out of right. this category. You may be missing one item out of it of actually getting a diagnosis, but that doesn't mean that you are not, for all effective purposes, autistic. Right, right. And uh, then I sort of do the, like, okay, like, I'm watching you, I'm talking to you. Okay, I know you're on the spectrum. I don't right. care where you are. I don't care. You Whether know. you have right the piece of paper that says it or doesn't say it, I can tell right away you're thinking in that kind of style that is causing challenges because of all the normal spectrum challenge issues we run into. And so then the difference, I think, or the way I approach it, which is the difference, is I go, okay, I know now that this you, I have some idea of where you are. So now I'm going to go there. I'm not going to expect you to come to where I am. I'm going to go to where you are. Because uh, now I go, oh, this is where you think. So that's who I have to talk to. I'm not talking to a Carol. I'm going to be talking to a Tim. And I'm going to understand Tim. Because it doesn't make any sense if I'm going to be talking to Tim and thinking, oh, I'm talking to a, I'm going to make Tim a neurotypical. It's like, well, no, I'm not. 
you know, that, I, you, that, I, I love that. That is so good. It makes me think there's a gentleman I'm job coaching right now. And he's, he's autistic, a brilliant, brilliant gentleman. And it's really funny. He decided that he wanted to go to a therapist. He's had some challenges, you know, growing up as a child and such. He's late 30s now. And, uh, he decided, you know, a therapist might be a, a good thing to do. So he's going to a therapist and, you know, as his job goes, he's obviously sharing quite a bit with me. And he was telling me about his interactions with a therapist. And what this therapist kept telling him was, well, forget the autism stuff. That's just an excuse. This guy is, this guy, A, is brilliant, phenomenal, great, nice, wonderful gentleman. But he's definitely got, you know, lots of spectrum traits that are very obvious. And and I think it's so important what you just said is this this therapist doesn't even want to learn about him as an individual. They just want to go back to, oh, I was trained at this, this, and this if you had a problem with childhood stuff. And throw out that autism. That autism means nothing. Means nothing. Right. And I'm like, no. That is part of, that's part of the package. Right. It's, that's, I, I like to say, if you're autistic, everything in the world is perceived and processed by a mind that thinks through autistic methodology. So you right. can't separate, there's no way to separate it out because it's how anything gets in in the first place. Right. That's why the whole, the techniques I use, it's all about the get into that mind, learn that mind, be that, because that's the only way you're going to get it. That's. Because I learn about autism from people who are autistic, as opposed from a book or from another professor, I learned exactly what people who are autistic were feeling. They told me. They were like, no, you got it wrong. No, you got it wrong. I'm like, okay, tell me what I need to know. And they did. And it was great. And then I could help them and they could help me. And it was the most, and I never felt I was in a room with autistic people. It was just like, again, there's Joe, Sam, Sarah. It it never felt like, it just felt like, okay, these people need help getting what they want, which is they want to understand dating a little better. That was it. It was never, I am teaching people on the spectrum how to date. I'm like, no, I'm not. I'm just helping them get what they want. And that was it. I did want to talk to you about what you do because what you do is something I very much want to be involved in because having come from the corporate environment, I know what that's like. I know what it's like now, at least, to go, oh, this is tough. This is tough for a person on the spectrum to navigate this because they don't know the rules and nobody's telling them the rules. So they're going to navigate it the way they're going to navigate it and it's going to end up wrong because nobody thinks they need to know anything. And so there's that disconnect. And I very much want to to help in that arena because I lived in that arena, you know, and I and I know what can happen with those disconnects. And wonderful, absolutely wonderful. Well, unfortunately, we're running out of time. It goes way too quick, and I think there's lots of things that I would love to do this again. Let me ask you: How how would people that want to learn more about what you do and and how you do it, and possibly have you help them? How can they contact you? So my website is www.socialdynamics, and it's dynamicsmix.net. I'm on LinkedIn. And if you wanted to even call me directly, my office number is 781-559-3196. Perfect. I will go and put that down in the show notes and such so people don't have to try and you know transcribe it from, uh, from uh, verbal. Uh, to make it easy for them, but uh, at least this way they'll know it's not in the show notes. 
And I so much appreciate this time and talking with you. Uh, it's been absolutely great. wonderful. Na, na, na. We hope that you've enjoyed another episode of Life in a Neurotypical Universe. Please, if you enjoyed this, share it with your friends. Go take their phone and subscribe them. Hey, it will help us all out. If you want to know more about neurodiversity or have any questions for me, you can reach me at my website, timgoldstein.com, where I'll be more than glad to help you as best I can to navigate through the neurotypical universe. 